Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. What you're about to listen to is the third and final part of a three-part series on Machiavelli. In the first two parts, I sort of do the context of this, and I do a historical analysis of what I think Machiavelli was saying, or what ideology we can reconstruct from these primary texts. In this one, I bring it all together, and I sort of try to apply it to the world, and I ask, you know, having reconstructed a particular vision of freedom, does it make sense? And I sort of, I don't know, I would love your thoughts on this. Does this make sense? What do you think? So, I invite and welcome any feedback on this. My email is toby, T-O-B-Y, at politicalphilosophypodcast.com. You can also tweet at me or Facebook me. The links to all of the social media as well as the ways to follow the podcast are on our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. So let me know. And I'll maybe do an audience questions and comments episode after this, because I've already received a few thoughtful questions or comments or responses to this series. I'll see how it goes, but, you know, let me know what you think. Going forward from that on the podcast, I've arranged some good interviews, so we will get back to those eventually for people who are more here for the interviews, but I do enjoy taking a bit of time out like this to bring you solo projects. So, please do send me your thoughts. Thank you, everyone, again for listening. There's no outro to this episode. I just close it as I close it like I did the the last one. So, you know, thank you as ever for loyal fans of the show. And yeah, genuinely, let me know what you think of this one. So, without any further preamble, this is the third and final part of my Machiavelli series. Here's a way that you could look at society. In our society, in our culture, in our political unit, whatever, we have two sets of currencies. And for both of these currencies, we're continually having interactions, transactions with other people. And more than that, the entire structure, the entire constitutional order of our societies is based around ways of regulating these currencies, controlling their flow, deciding who gets how much of them and why. The first of those currencies is currency currency. It's just money, it's financial transactions, and every day we have these economic interactions. We spend money buying a sandwich at the store, we get paid from doing our job, we pay taxes, and the government spends and redistributes that money in certain ways. The other currency is in some ways even older than that, and I would say arguably, arguably, that's going to be the big question I'm going to ask in this episode, more fundamental to human nature, and that's the currency of honour 
of power, of self-respect. That's the currency of pride, of the will to dominate, of feelings of humiliation and powerlessness. And in our society, in a modern society that's lived with at least a couple of hundred years of sort of liberal individualism and at least a hundred years of sort of this import of Newtonianism into social sciences that calls itself economics, we tend to view the first currency, the economic currency, the money currency, as more rational, more fundamental, more objective in a way, if I could say that. And likewise, even in political philosophy or moral philosophy, which to an economist, much much less a sort of hard scientist, might seem like quite a squishy discipline, we're still primarily, almost exclusively in fact, concerned with that first economic set of transactions, that first currency. And I have a theory about why that is. I think, you know, political philosophers are very smart people, but they are people, and like all people, they're shaped by their circumstances. And it does happen to be the case that most political philosophers, being academics, are quite rich in one currency and quite poor in another. So, at least relative to other positions in our society that require that much specialised training, academics in the social sciences are comparatively poorly paid. If you think about like how long you have to train to be a medical doctor, it's somewhat comparable to that, and I don't have the statistics to hand, but I'm sure medical doctors get paid more. So academics, and even very senior academics, this is not the way you become a millionaire, by and large, right? However, academics are quite rich in what you might call the currency of honour and degradation. Now, I'm not at all saying that academics are people who lord it over other people, quite the contrary, but they do tend to be well-respected, they do tend to be listened to when they open their mouths, they do tend to have very, very good job security, at least comparative to the median American worker. The sorts of humiliations that come from living in a workplace that's a very strict and very enforced hierarchy, where senior management imposes its will by threatening people's jobs, or taking people's jobs, or doing mass layoffs, which is, you know, a very common thing for many American workers. Anyone who's worked in sales knows the feeling of if you don't make your target this week, that's, that's your paycheck. And so, as a result, I think, of academics being comparatively shortchanged when it comes to monetary currency, economic currency, but comparatively affluent when it comes to honorific currency, I think they take the latter for granted. And as a result, because, to put it briefly, political philosophers tend to be comparatively poorly paid, but com also comparatively secure and respected, they disproportionately focus on questions of income distribution, questions of distributive justice and the like, and 
comparatively at least, I think tend to neglect questions of the distribution of honour, the distribution of self-worth, the distribution of feelings of humiliation and domination that are going to be key to the story I've been telling in this. Now, that's not universal. There are exceptions. Someone like Elizabeth Anderson springs to mind, Philip Pettit too, perhaps he's done some stuff about freedom within the workplace. But it is a trend overall. Now, I also don't think it's the case that the reason I just outlined is the only reason I think a hundred plus years of economics positioning itself as if not quite a hard science, definitely a lot harder and more objective than something as supposedly squishy as moral philosophy or sociology or something like that, right? So I think there's lots of different reasons for that, and the one I've given you is just sort of my pet theory. But I do find it interesting how much we focus on one of those sets of currencies and not the other. So what I've been doing in this series is trying to bring you a moral vision of the world, an account of how societies are structured and of how they ought to be structured that exists within that second currency, the currency of honour and the desire to dominate and the desire not to be dominated and humiliated, and that is comparatively unconcerned with the first currency, economic currency, or at least that has been my interpretation that I've been bringing to you of Niccolò Machiavelli, someone who was both not primarily a scholar, he was a politician, he was at some points in his career not just a diplomat but a military commander, and also someone who exists before the Enlightenment, before modern liberalism, and relevant to our story before Marxism, before the analysis of society, both the defense of the status quo and the radical attempts to subvert that status quo become inexorably bound up in economic analysis, be it the Newtonian individualism that eventually will capture the minds of the elite, or the historical materialism that will capture the minds of many radical challengers to that, we're rewinding the clock to before all that, to come to bring to you a vision of the world which is based in the desire to dominate and humiliate, and to ask if that still makes sense today. And I don't know. I don't know if it does or not. And I'm going to end this series with a question, which is, does this way of looking at the world make sense? And I don't know. I think it kind of does, and it kind of doesn't. And it's interesting to just pick up this pair of glasses, this much older pair of glasses, a pair of glasses made and forged in a world very, very different to ours, and made by human beings whose minds were constructed very, very different to ours, and just try them on and see what the world looks like. And I'm going to present that to you and just sort of end with a question of what do we, what do we think about this? So, what are these pair of glasses? Now, I'm going to just give it to you in my own words this episode. If you want my full 
historic account of why I think this is a plausible read of Machiavelli. My last episode was a big long one where I did, this is my methodology, this is the primary text, so I'm going to read it all out to you, I'm going to tell you what I'm doing to those texts and why I got this out of it. So this here is just my summary. If you want the full argument of why I think this is a plausible account, um, check out the first and the second part. But it, it goes something like this. Fundamental to human nature are two closely related but conflicting desires, and these desires are necessarily going to be in conflict. There is the desire to dominate and humiliate other people, and the desire in turn to not be dominated and to not be humiliated. And that people want one thing after the next. Machiavelli tells us, it's one of the chapters, in fact, of his book, people desire first simply to avoid injury and then to inflict injury on others. There's no resting state for Machiavelli. There's no point where you're out of the woods, you're not being dominated, and then you're merely happy and content. As soon as you get to the point where you've thrown off the shackles of the domination of others, you want to dominate other people. And so we'll find in any society that there will be two dispositions, that of the comparatively powerful, who will seek to humiliate those below them, and those below them who will seek in turn not to be humiliated. That dichotomy will be more or less a universal in every different human society. However, who exactly those groupings are will change and shift. In some societies, it will be a particular aristocratic lineage. In others, it will be a moneyed elite. In others, it might be a warrior class who claims the position of the comparatively powerful in our society. Now, this, and I want to be clear, is not something the historic Machiavelli, who, let's be honest, was a bit of a misogynist, more than a bit, probably. But in modern society, I, I think we can also think about the comparatively powerful in terms of gender, in terms of race, in terms of um, heterosexuality being the norm of our society. That's taking the argument further, like I say, than the historic Machiavelli would. But I think it still makes sense to think about the comparatively powerful and the comparatively powerless, and the respective desires to dominate and humiliate, and the desire not to be dominated. Given that those two desires are sort of more or less a universal, that's sort of what you're working with all over, the question becomes, well, how, how, what do you do with that, right? Well, the first thing that Machiavelli calls our attention to time and time again in many of his works is big explosions of the popular will, big popular protests, riots, often violent riots, that he sees as being motivated by this desire not to be dominated, not to be humiliated. So a paper I really like, um, From Fight to Debate, Machiavelli and the Revolt of the Compi, um, by Martin Libovici, I've been quoting from, um, asks, quote, Will the memorialist of the next century 
turning to our civil strife and internal hostilities, deem them worthy of being transmitted to memory, as Machiavelli did in his History of Florence. To return to Machiavelli today, to the History of Florence in particular, is to follow episode by episode, and without the revelation of any final truth, repeated surfacings of the desire for freedom, from one situation to another, from one conflict to another, navigating ceaselessly between the temptation to abolish freedom through recourse to absolute power, and moments where Virtu triumphs over Fortuna and achieves an order that, though fragile, makes antagonisms fit in such a way that instead of fights, they become debates. End quote. So, in other words, this idea of big popular protests, of messy, and Machiavelli says often frightening explosions of the popular will, are something that he revisits again and again. He mentions them and explicitly defends them, and explicitly defends them in a way he knows his audience will find counterintuitive, at length in the discourses. And then again in the, the history of Florence, the Florentine histories, he revisits it again and again and again. And this, to him, is where freedom is to be found. And I've argued that for Machiavelli, freedom is a sort of holistic property of the people as a whole. The people here being not necessarily a demographic group, but those who desire not to be dominated. Freedom is a set of traditions and mores and common bonds where they know they have each other's back and feel confident to say no. We will not be humiliated by you. We won't bow down. We won't lick your boots. No. And those big protests aren't themselves constituent of freedom. They can lead to what Machiavelli calls license, and I'll get back to that. But in being forced on occasion to give ground, to make compromise, to placate the mob, the rioters, the comparatively powerful, have to make concessions to them. And in that making of concessions, Machiavelli says that is the origin of laws that lead to freedom. It is precisely class conflict, understood here not so much in economic but in psychological terms. It is that class conflict that leads to freedom materialising itself in a state. There's a bit more to say about that. First, what is the theory of change? If that's sort of what freedom is, how does it come about? How do societies progress and develop? How do we actualize that? If that's what freedom is, how do we get it? And then the other, which I think is a neglected but central feature of political ideologies, of these, like I say, glasses that we put on to view the world through, is what does it say about us? What does it say about people? I'm going to conclude the episode with that, but let's first just do a little reality check, right? Let's let's put these glasses on and have a little look at the world around us. Do these make sense? Is it the case that in every society there are these two desires? So again, quoting from the, the same paper from Fight to Debate, 
quote, In other words, no society is one. It is always worked through by two conflicting asymmetrical desires, to dominate and not be dominated. End quote. Is that true? Well, I think it's at least plausible, right? And in, in arguing for its plausibility, I can appeal to history, I can appeal to many of the results of modern psychology, and I can also appeal to introspection. So, starting with history, let's just look at history through these glasses. And I think you'll see, when you look at any society, you will find people who are not merely, or not always, trying to exploit people economically, but are trying to humiliate and trying to dominate. So, um, in my conversation, you can go back, it's a huge three-parter, which I very much enjoyed, with Orlando Patterson, who, amongst other things, is a comparative historian of slavery. He talked about how it is the case that slavery tends to be a universal of human societies. It's existed across regions of the world, across cultures, and it has at its heart the degradation and dishonouring of another human being. That is more universal to the experience of slavery than is economic exploitation. Not all slaves are economically exploited. Going forward, how many conquerors, how many imperators can you think of who do things for seemingly no other reason than to do them, to establish their own power? Think about the rituals, the fawning that has accompanied most kings and most emperors throughout all of history, and thinking even today of our supposedly cold and rationalistic societies, though where we've got beyond all that, it seems, looking at it through these glasses, transparently obvious to me that people desire money and desire to have it precisely because it brings them honour, in a certain sense, and it brings them the ability to dominate and humiliate others. Think about simply being, you know, let's let's make it stereotypical, right, and say, you know, a tall, strong, white man who has that, you know, lovely cut suit that obviously costs thousands of dollars, the black Amex, and just that presentation, that persona, how much that enables you to talk down to that barmaid barmaid, as if I'm in the 1800s, um, bartender, sorry, um, in a way that someone who was presenting as a different class status would not be able to do. More than that, think about the opulent displays of wealth, the, the way people buy things seemingly just to show that they can buy them. And is it just me, or is there a bit of the desire to humiliate in that? And then look at how we treat the, the lower classes, I mentioned in the last episode the example of mandatory drug testing for welfare recipients. By many accounts, that would cost us money to implement, so what's the point of it? Well, it's a humiliation ritual. And I think when you look at history through that lens, there are many, many ruling classes that aren't 
particularly concerned with, say, merely economic exploitation, but they all want to be honoured, and they all want to demean and humiliate the people below them. Even, I think, our supposedly much more technocratic and cold-blooded ruling class today. So that's history. Well, just quickly then, with psychology, there's been a number of experiments that have shown that having money makes people less ethical and more willing to humiliate others. So there was a very simple experiment they did where they made people play games of Monopoly and they gave one player much more money or some sort of structural advantage and noticed how after a while, even though they both players knew the game was rigged, the one with more money would start to speak and their body language would signal a much more arrogant and combative tone, eventually bordering on disdainful. And I encourage you to look that up if you haven't heard of that experiment. Finally, let's move on to intuition. Can you not see, or what's the cliché, the two wolves fighting in the man's heart? What are the worst things you've ever fantasised about? I'm not going to be too explicit here, but have you never found yourself playing a loop in your head where you do something terrible to other people? I think we all have, right? Those of you who've been a senior manager, have you ever found yourself getting angry that they just won't do what they're told? People don't like the working conditions, they shouldn't work here, and they just need to, like, know their place in this sort of little self-righteous nasty pettiness that wells up in you? And then on the other side, what are the moments you've never forgotten in your life? I guarantee you some of them are when you felt humiliated and powerless. Has e- e- those times where someone said something to you that they probably forgot about in a moment, but got under your skin when you, for whatever reason, weren't able to say something back. You weren't able to restore your honour. How many times have you had a moment like that and you spend spend days, weeks, months thinking about what you ought to have said? How many of you have an instance from, the, the, the stereotype here would be from high school, where you felt humiliated by someone higher up the social pecking chain than you and it's niggled at you and you've gone back on it again and again and again. You know this is real. I think it's obviously the case that I asked Orlando Patterson, talking of history, how is it that slavery, this same institution, seems to have evolved independently yet with very similar features in almost every culture in the world? Are we natural slaveholders? And his response was interesting. He said, we naturally desire to dominate people. That's surely true. And so, if domination, humiliation, these rituals are a norm of human nature, so too is the desire to not be dominated. And it's in that dialectic that we find find freedom. Freedom is that negative assertion against the overwhelming tides of human history and human psychology. And I think all of this makes a sort of sense of today's society. I think 
Yes, there is a sort of rational, utilitarian argument about income distributions. Yes, there's like a sort of Rawlsian analytic argument about income distributions. But there is also that other element to them. That, that what gives poverty its sting is a sense that we are being humiliated. And what makes wealth so desirable is that it would give us, in turn, the ability to humiliate. And, you know, I wonder, I wonder if that's all just a little bit darker than we really want to talk about. But it does make a kind of sense, doesn't it? Put that pair of glasses on just for a day and walk around the world and witness all of the little psychological transactions people have that might seem to be about money or something. But aren't. They aren't at all. They're about feelings of humiliation and powerlessness. So, let's add in one more element to this, which is the theory of change. As I've argued extensively on this podcast, one of the main things that we can use to divide up political ideologies is how they conceptualise what positive social change looks like. So, you know, radicals, revolutionaries, hardcore socialists will conceptualise positive change as like starting a new leaf. You know, just there's this snap and we're in this fundamentally utopian moment, the, the sort of deus ex machina of the revolution figures large for them. Liberals, progressives tend to conceptualise change as charting new ground. It's open-ended and exploratory. It, it, it's also, it builds on itself, so the idea of a line on a graph going up and up and up and up and up and up, that can conceptualise this idea of progress quite well. Also, the conservative notion of change, and again, a lot of this will often be implicit and even subconscious, but the conservative notion of change is always restorative. It's going back to something, returning to something. So at its crudest, make America great again. But even in its more sophisticated forms, libertarians want to get back to an underlying set of quote-unquote economic laws that they believe structures society. So those are how some of the modern ideologies think about change, and they developed those ways of thinking about change in response to the Industrial Revolution, which was a hugely psychologically disruptive moment in human history, where people, you, you no longer had the ability to think of human societies as essentially constant. They were changing so fast. And so people had to make sense of that change. So people like, well, Marx, for instance, believed that history was going to end. Time would continue, but history would end. Other people like John Stuart Mill sort of thought of it as um, the permanent ends of man as a progressive being, was how he phrased it. Whereas conservatives, maybe someone like Burke, wanted to stress what was fixed and stable in human societies, what wasn't being affected by these shockwaves of change. So there's, those are the ways we think about change now, either as a reversion, as progress, as a line going up, or as a sudden revolution. Those are, those are the different competing theories of change that we have today. Well, what would make sense of this, what I've called resistance freedom? Freedom that is found 
in the act of resisting? Well, it doesn't obviously go with any of them, right? There will never be... It doesn't obviously go with progressive freedom, because it's not a matter of improvement. You will always be fighting against the desire to dominate. That desire is never going away for Machiavelli. It's also quite radical. It's not obviously allied to a conservative notion of change. Nor is it obviously revolutionary. There's never a moment for Machiavelli where the people win and a new utopia is set up. If one faction triumphs over another in Machiavelli's worldview, then they just become the new dominators. Nor is it a case of liberal equilibrium. So so what what makes sense here? What what piece fits with this? And I'll use my metaphor that I use sometimes of systems of political ideas as like notes in a chord. We have some of the notes in the chord, but what other notes will go with this note of freedom and will not sound discordant? Well, I think what was in Machiavelli, and this was not unique to him, this was drawn from a lot of his study of the ancient world, is they saw change as essentially cyclical. If, in the modern progressive worldview, we visualise change as, like I say, this line going up and up and up and up on a graph, like GDP or life expectancy or something, although those things are apparently going down now, but whatever, um, the ancients, the ancient Greeks in particular, visualised it as a circle. This goes round. Think about the cycle of the seasons, the, the cycle of birth, growth, middle age, having children, growing old, those children in turn, it just goes round and round and round. And throughout all of the ancient works, when they're laying out their typologies of states, they see it as cyclical. So when Plato and Aristotle lay out their quite different, you know, typologies of these are the different types of states. It's always in terms of one type of state decaying into another type of state, which decays into another, which in turn, you know, down the line gives birth again to the original form of state. And that you see in Machiavelli's typology of states, that he lays out at the beginning of the discourses, and it's sort of subtle, but it's latent in all of his work. And he talks about in different ages that the 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 same things happen to, to to people in the same ways. And in a sense, we're not just living, but we're always reliving history. And what's very very different for Machiavelli, and this was the case until quite recently in human history, is when we think about where we are on the line of on the graph, where we are on the the civilizational ladder, we think about it as we're the high point. No, no one else in human history has reached the heights that we have technologically, maybe even morally and societally, right? Um, the Renaissance mind didn't see that at all. They they saw themselves as living under the shadow of Rome, that Rome, and this, you know, this may be counter-historical, but they saw Rome as the greatest civilization that had ever existed, and their great mission was to resurrect that. And that also did away with any, 
you know, it, it would be very difficult for these people to have a modern liberal progressive conception or a socialist revolutionary conception, some sort of conception of change that, that got to an end state. Because to them, the greatest state that had ever existed had already collapsed. And their project was to, to build back to something like that. They were on the low point of the circle, coming back, trying to get themselves back to that high point, which would eventually again, in, in, in the future, collapse again, back into the low point again. And I'll just say this very quickly, this is a complete aside, very much an aside, but there's, there's always this interpretation of Machiavelli as like the first of the moderns, that he was the person who really decoupled politics from morality and made it into like an objective science and in many ways prefigured economics and sociology and all of that. Um, it's just profoundly wrong, I think. Machiavelli, I don't think, saw himself as some on giving birth to the modern world, nor do his ideas obviously prefigure it. He saw himself as destroying the modern world and resurrecting the ancient. And many people read into Cesare Borgia, this, this prince who was the model for the prince, and act actions worthy of a Roman was something that was said of him. And there was this group of people very influenced by the idea of Rome and themselves living in the shadow of it who were attempting to rebuild that, to reunify Italy and rebirth this great and violent and ancient and terrifying popular republic, which was what they imagined Rome to be. So that's, that's an aside, but how does that fit in with freedom. Well, again, it's cyclical. The overwhelming norm of human history is for the desire to dominate, to win out. But periodically against that, civilizations will rise up where that other desire can come forth and hold it in check. And it, in, it is those civilizations that will succeed, where the people can carve out a space for themselves. That will lead not only to freedom, but to power and stability and glory. This is what Machiavelli wants to tell us. So this is from the Florentine histories. In every city, these two parties exist. The princedom originates thus. People desire not to be bossed and oppressed by the rich, the grandi. The rich desire to boss and oppress the people. As a result of these two opposed desires, one of three effects appears in the city. Princely rule, or liberty, or license. So, the desire for liberty exists in this cycle where it continually has to reassert itself against the, the princely desire to, be, to dominate. Sometimes it will simply fail, and the desire to dominate will win. So there's three results, right? Princely rule, liberty, or license. Sometimes it will just simply lose. Sometimes licensing means chaos, disorder. That's when it doesn't secure itself in changing the law, in forcing itself as to part of the body politic, securing 
you know, a place within the politics of the city where it has a say in the governance of the city or the state. But for the, de- the desire for liberty simply causes the ruin of the state. That can happen. Popular protest is always a double-edged sword. Or it can establish itself. It can secure itself a place in the governance of the state. And that leads to security to prosperity and to liberty. So there's this really famous bit, which I covered a lot in the last one, where he says the disunion between the people and Senate of Rome made that republic both free and powerful. So again, let's go back. Let's map this pair of spectacles on. Does this make sense? Well, I gave the example last time of considering the civil rights movement in America. So you think there's big popular protests, you know, the, the, um, all of these marches, all of these civil disobedience, often bordering into violence, stuff that if it happened today, you know, our, our mealy-mouthed centrists would be saying how they've gone too far, and civility, and it needs to be much more protected, and me, 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 right? Machiavelli would have none of that analysis. This worldview would say, what do we ascribe as the motives of these people? And if you look at you know, the, the civil rights movement, the, the anti-war movement, the feminist movement, some of the radical socialist movements, all of this tumultuous, broiling, angry... I mean, it might seem a little simplistic, But could you put a common denominator to all of them as the desire not to be dominated? Could you read into all of them feelings of humiliation leading to anger, leading to radical action? That's at least plausible, right? And that would fit perfectly with the Machiavellian account. We can subsume all of this as you do get these explosions of popular will, which comes from a natural desire not to be dominated, not to be humiliated. If you think about the, the very obvious, just to take the, you know, the essentially obvious case, very obvious humiliations that black Americans have to endure, especially back then, Right? And so what does Machiavelli say? Remember, this is a cyclical theory. There's no end game here, necessarily. But he says that explosion of the desire not to be dominated can have three effects. Princely rule, liberty, or license. So the first is that it simply loses. It's crushed and you return to the status quo. Well, that didn't quite happen. I know some, like, uber social justice radicals, you know, the type who even I don't take seriously, who say that the civil rights movement accomplished nothing and things now are as bad as it ever was. I don't don't think we really believe that, do we? Something was accomplished. The other, the final one is license. What people at the time feared that society would be rent apart and the state would collapse. That didn't happen either. The basic constitutional order of America survived. What happened was freedom, right? Maybe not full freedom, but freedom, as Machiavelli would emphasize, is something that can never be fully realized. It that, that always exceeds what is 
it is likely to reach and is always ready to, to reappear. And in doing so, many of these groups carved out a space for themselves within the political system. Now, I, I know people will say it was incomplete and there was much more work to do. I, yeah, I completely agree. This isn't a triumphalist narrative. But, by and large, black Americans formalized the right to vote. <clears throat> they gained over the successive generations a number of legal rights. Um, this is going to go out very close to the anniversary of Loving versus Virginia, yeah, there's all these big cases like that, like Brown versus the board and so on, to today, you know, where we have literally, you know, we have dozens of black representatives in Congress that, you know, the power of black Americans is still less than the, the power of the average white American. No one's pretending, other, or no sensible person is pretending otherwise. But they carved out a space for themselves within the polity. And that is freedom. And certain spaces today exist whereby not obviously that black Americans are not completely free from racism or anything like that. We're not living in a colorblind utopia, but where for brief moments they can bond together and in their collectivity say we, we will not, we don't have to fucking put up with you anymore. That that, that, de that, that desire can exist is a state of freedom. Now, I'm not necessarily even saying that read of American history is right. But that's sort of the read you get when you look at it through this pair of glasses. And let me add an element to that, which is Machiavelli doesn't just say free. He says free and powerful. And he says rather notoriously in the discourses, if you have it in mind to have an empire you need to incorporate the people into your government. Why? Because you're going to need them. And we do tend to see that, don't we? Like a lot of these big world-defining empires, while certainly not being progressive, pluralistic, tolerant places, did have this thing where the, the people carved out for themselves certain spaces where they could have a share in political power. So thinking about Rome, this was not a you know, modern liberal society by any stretch of the imagination, but there was some popular participation, both within government and the army, there was some forms of redistribution. Thinking again about the English Empire, did always have a restrained monarchy, a popular element, even if we're talking in both of these cases, the popular element being a fairly small section of the society as a whole, it was still there. It wasn't just this hierarchy of clientels or absolute despotism. It was, again, not a modern liberal state, but, but it wasn't what most societies have been. And the same again with America. America is a great and terrible and bloody and powerful empire. It is the sort of thing that Machiavelli wanted to resurrect. It, it, I'm not gonna say the new Rome, but like that's how he would have seen it, right? And he would have seen its power as great, as glorious. That doesn't fit particularly easy with the, the, the sort of modern left, which is sympathetic to social justice movements, but that, that is how he would have seen it. 
and he would have seen and this is where it becomes so hard to make sense of this because like so far we've been going along and nodding along and like yes the desire to dominate the desire not to be dominated popular protest is good and now you get to this bit where it's like and the reason popular protest is good is it lets you have an empire that's the the way of looking at the world through this pair of glasses that is really uneasy right but is it also true, right? America has been able to incorporate a large number of people into a body politic and have them be loyal to that body politic and have them ready to die for that body politic in a way that other perhaps more culturally or ethnically or linguistically homogenous societies simply haven't. And as a result, it's crushed those other societies. And one thing that I think really falls out when we look at the modern American Republic through this lens, and we ask, you know, what would Machiavelli say today? Well, it's an incoherent question. But, like, what, what does this way of looking at the world imply? One thing I think it would imply is it would be very radically pro-immigration. One of the things, and I said I'd touch on this, is at the heart, what's the view of human nature here? Well, it's almost the converse of a conservative one. Machiavelli believes that human nature is very changeable. It's very flexible. He tells us that people say there are good soldiers wherever you have money, or there's good soldiers wherever there's this race or breed of people. And Machiavelli says there are good soldiers wherever there are men. And if you'll ignore the male pronoun for a second, his point is that laws and customs and a, a well-ordered society, a society in which there is excellence, there is virtue in his words. That is what makes good soldiers. And I've always read there to be something about America's history of being comparatively, and I say comparatively, but comparatively open to immigrants throughout its history, and in spite of all the racism and horrors, comparatively open to acclimating different groups of people that has made America, again, to Machiavelli's words, both free and powerful. But there's an element to that in American history which is often dressed as idealism, but I think is anything but. I, I think has an element of realpolitik to it, to use... Um, to use a phrase that often accompanies Machiavelli. But I think Machiavelli would see something like the inscription on the Statue of Liberty, give me your, you know, give me your masses yearning to be free, right? And he would interpret that, firstly, I think as something completely congruent with this idea of yearning for non-domination, but also, but also as eminently practical, People are raw materials. People are flexible to Machiavelli. It's almost like some other country is just dumping all of its timber and iron on your shores because it doesn't have the strength or the intellect to turn those things into ships and guns. And it's like, oh, you, you don't want that? Oh, well, we'll just have it then. And we'll use it to build those ships and guns. And then we will take everything from you with them because of your foolishness and i think that's the process 
that that is a way and he's very explicit in his analysis of Rome and how Rome incorporated many foreigners within it that Machiavelli would look at America's history of being a land of immigrants and say there's something smart there you're taking the raw materials of other countries and you're saying we will build them we will induct them into a citizen body in which there is excellence, in which there is virtue. And much like if you're just given us all of your raw materials, we will turn these people into soldiers and scientists and statesmen. And we will rule this world. And there's that link at the heart of Machiavelli between freedom and security. Not just security as like being protected, but an expansive, rapacious security. A security through conquering your neighbours. As, as inexorably bound up, I think security is a candidate for a core concept with Machiavelli, or at the, the very least a strong adjacent one and you can see that we've done the discourses a lot we've done the florentine histories we've done the republican freedom loving machiavelli now let's do the prince and this is the correct order to read machiavelli in right don't read the prince first and then the discourses that's not going to make any type of sense read the discourses first and then the prince but let's go back to the prince um what is like the core concept for him in the prince and I think people at first glance will say it's virtu. That's the thing. I think he mentions it 68 times in the work. Um, I'm going to disagree with that, as that's not the absolutely central value to which he's appealing. Um, But let's first just quickly do what virtu is, because I've been referencing it this whole time. Virtu gets translated as virtue. And the main thing everyone knows about it is that's not the the, the right translation. But it it, it comes, um, the the original would be the Greek word word arete, which I've been translating as excellence. But it also has very strong connotations of manliness and masculinity. So it's virtue. Here's, Here's an interesting little one for you. Virtue etymologically has the same It's the same root word as virility. To be virtuous is to be virile. To be a man is to be excellent and to be virile. Don't let the fucking alt-right people get a hold on this one. I don't know what they'll do with that. Um, But the Romans talked about being a viritus ver. Um, I said my Italian accent is garbage. How's my Latin accent, guys? Um, but a viritus ver, meaning a manly man. And the whole idea of this sort of militarized Roman participatory, messy, republican thing that they had going on was all inexorably bound up in ideas of masculinity. It was all bound up in ideas of virility, actually, just to be direct about it. And that is contrasted with fortuna, or fortune, or or chance, or or, what have you, which is perceived of as being being feminine. So so the struggle of the world is, is, is the masculine desire to impose order on the unpredictable and female nature of the world and if this is sounding hideously misogynistic it's 
because it is, right? But Virtu was what was seen as necessary in order to do things. So when Machiavelli starts The Prince, he says, you know, what is it that enabled princes to mantenos lo stato, to maintain their state or status? And he says it, it, it was virtue. Think about almost like this is the way in which the virtue translation makes sense. In virtue of what did you maintain your state? In virtue of your virtue, your virtue. God, my accent's doing terrible things on, 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 on this one. Um, and he goes through the prince and he says, you know, virtue is the thing that enables the princes to... Where princes succeeded is because they had this quality. And when they didn't succeed, it's because they were lacking in this quality. They were lacking in this manly excellence, we might say. And then, okay, so then the first thing the prince would want to know, and this is where Machiavelli really is subversive, right? And, like, one of the things I'm not doing in this series is I'm not giving you a redemptive Machiavelli. A lot of people want to say, no, 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 he was nothing like what he's been made out to be. He was actually this really swell person, guys. I'm not actually giving you that. There is, there is a Machiavellian side to Machiavelli, although it's cleverer and subtler. And I think wittier than people think, because he's just set up this thing. He talks about it 68 times. He said it's masculinity, it's excellence, and it's virtue. And what's more, if you have it... You'll maintain your princedom and you'll achieve glory, Gloria. But if you don't, you'll succeed and you'll be you'll you'll you won't succeed and you'll be killed. So the first thing the prince is going to want to know is okay. Well, so so what is this virtue thing? Virtu? What is it, right? And then Machiavelli goes, well, actually, yeah, that's a good question. What is it? And he openly questions what it is, which is a bit of a bit of a dick move, right? Um, and, and where this is coming from is there's been this whole tradition of books called Mirrors for Princes that have had a very similar formula where they've said virtue is what you need, virtue is what you need, and virtue is having the virtues, and the virtues are, the virtues are things like telling the truth, liberality, clemency, and Machiavelli sort of subverts all of those and sort of says, well, hang on. You know, a lot of people have been clement and they've pardoned people, but then those same people still rose against them. And in the end, a lot more people died than would have done if they'd have just done what was necessary and killed them to begin with. So is that really clement? Also, he says, you know, generosity, liberality is considered a princely virtue. But if a prince has to impose harsh taxes on his subjects, maybe actually being miserly is actually the virtue here. So, what are we to make of this as an analyst of ideologies? And I think a bunch of people who study political theory will have just thrown their hands up in the air and just gone, that's not a great question to ask, Toby. Just bear with me a sec. If we're trying to get an ideology out of that, what are we to make of, of, of that? Well, there is a bit of history to this, and Quentin Skinner brings this out quite nicely. There's a talk on YouTube you can watch that he does called How Machiavellian Was Machiavelli? But he goes through this, 
and what he's doing is he's taking to the next step what's in Aristotle's rhetoric, where Aristotle says, well, this is a good rhetorical strategy. Take those good things that your opponent does and call them the opposite. So if your opponent is very careful with his money, call him miserly. If your opponent is very confident, call him arrogant. But what, what becomes... What's a rhetorical strategy in Aristotle becomes more fundamental in Machiavelli. It becomes, well, is this really virtue? If it doesn't produce the results, maybe it's not just being called this other thing. Maybe it is this other thing. But the standard against which all of them are judged is, does it maintain the state? If, and if it doesn't, it's not really virtue. So, translating virtue as excellence, this quality that a prince must have, Machiavelli sort of going through case by case and saying, well, is this excellence? And this isn't like some modern empirical thing that people imagine Machiavelli doing, but he's taking it as axiomatic that the first thing you do is that you maintain the state. And this logic goes whether you're a prince or you're a republic. If you're a prince, you want to maintain the state, because if you don't, you're nothing, you're done. You'll probably even be killed. But for a republic, too, there's this long idea in republicanism, the idea that the safety of the people is the highest law. And I think that that positions it as, as a core concept for Machiavelli, because this is, even though it's not mentioned as much as virt virtue, this is the standard by which he's measuring virtue, which I would argue makes this idea of maintaining the state, we might call it security, prior to the idea of virtue, virtue. So virtue isn't I don't think the highest ideal in Machiavelli, because that ideal is being judged and reassessed in light of this sort of more fundamental consequentialism, for lack of a better word, that really the fundamental thing is, does the state collapse? Now, what's interesting about this as a candidate for a core concept is Frieden tells us in his work on ideologies, that core concepts will be mutually supporting, but also mutually constraining. And I think if you look at the relationship between security and freedom in Machiavelli, as well as this idea of non-domination, you find ideas that prop each other up, but also limit each other. And that's a really odd candidate for two central ideas within an ideology, freedom and security. Especially a very sort of radical, I've called it resistance freedom, but an idea of freedom that would seem very left-wing to us. Combined with this seemingly much more orthodox, conservative idea. But I, I think there's a coherence here in Machiavelli. Maybe not an exact philosophical coherence, but a rough emotional and ideological and psychological coherence. So, to Machiavelli, these ideas reinforced each other. So, freedom reinforces security, because as Machiavelli tells us, truth, states that manage to instantiate freedom and find a place for it within their political structures are the most powerful. Truly free republics are the most enduring. If you remember the typologies of states, monarchies are impermanent because a great monarch, a good man in the role, will last. 
but he will be replaced by a tyrant eventually, and tyrants lead their states to ruin. Likewise, a good and wise council of nobles will over time eventually become corrupted, or will become replaced by less noble and less wise people, and again will lead their state into ruin. Even democracies have a, have a sort of centrifugal quality that can lead them towards chaos and anarchy, but states that can balance it out that can find a space where this chaotic, explosive desire of the people to say, fuck off and get off my back and don't dominate me anymore, where that can find institutional expression, the Romes, the Athens, the Englands, the, the Americas, these are the states that change the world. So freedom supports security because if you really want permanent free uh, permanent security you need to have a free state security also supports freedom because a state has to be stable for freedom to catch hold if you have an anarchic state it won't be free and if you have a state in which you know the the basic you know you you have to have some some common bonds in order to, say, have the civil rights movement. That's not to say people have to like each other or love each other, but there has to be some sort of set of societal obligations where it's not just wholesale genocide. And by the way, I, I am aware saying this that I know many civil rights activists were killed, but it didn't, it didn't become Rwanda, say. There has to be some existing civil society in order for freedom to assert itself. So security is necessary for freedom, and freedom is necessary for security. The other thing, of course, that Machiavelli tells us, he says, what's the worst thing about chaos? What's the worst thing about anarchy? What is, right? What, what would you guess he's going to say here? He says, the worst thing about chaos and anarchy isn't the chaos. It's that in the chaos a tyrant all dies. So the worst thing about the lack of security is you'll get a despotism which will lead to the end of freedom as well. So they're mutually reinforcing. They're also mutually constraining. You don't want so much security, you don't want so much law and order that it stifles the desire for freedom because that will in turn, undermine the security of the state in the long run. It also sets limits on what can be done for the expression of freedom. Freedom, which finds its origin in the institutional codification of this resistance, this desire not to be dominated, always must walk on a knife edge between simply allowing the powerful to crush it, and becoming so disruptive and so unruly that, that it ultimately leads to the breakdown of, of the society. So it's constrained as well by the need for security. But it, it's, constrained, it's, it's constrained in a much different way to how we today think about the constraints on political action. So let's again, let's take this pair of spectacles and let's sort of look at the world through it. And I said at the beginning 
I think there's something missing between competing progressive and radical conceptions of change. There's something that, that I feel could be brought to the table that's not, whereas progressive sort of say, you know, we have to work within the system, we have to get laws passed, we have to affect institutional change, and radicals say we have to do away with the whole system, and they have this almost not just teleological but eschatological view of change. Um, by the way, fancy words here. One of the reasons I listen to podcasts is to learn fancy words. Eschatological means end times. It's um, So when Jesus comes back to earth, that is Christian eschatology. Um, so I think some real radicals in our politics have this eschatological view where there, there will be this final reckoning. There's nothing like that in the worldview I'm bringing you. And telos actually is surprisingly literal. Um, telos just means far. Television, far vision, telephone, far talk. So teleological just means it has a distant endpoint in a literal translation of the Greek. Although it's come to mean different things in modern philosophy, I digress. So, so when it comes to this liberal radical divide in contemporary American politics, what does this way of th- th- seeing the world um? have to say about that. Well, on a sort of very mealy-mouthed liberal centrism that says, well, you know, obviously um, you've got to, you know, respect your opponents, you've got to, you know, be constrained and only protest in very socially applicable ways, and no, Colin Kirkpatrick kneeling does not count because reasons. Um, I think this, this sort of Machiavellian way, this sort of class conflict republicanism I bring, bring in just says, well, fuck off. Why? Um, And I do think there's something interesting about it, that centrists, and some conservatives actually, want the most fundamental thing to be that we all agree to play nice by the rules, and they don't give any moral... We're expected to give less moral weight to our own most deeply held moral convictions than we are to playing by an agreed-by set of rules. I just find that really weird, as if we're not capable of distinguishing better from worse actors in terms of who gets a milkshake thrown at them. So I I polled that, actually. I polled, um, should, um, we be throwing milkshakes at politicians, as they have been doing in the UK recently. And the majority of the audience said yes. But it's interesting, there was a lot of comments saying, well, not politicians, we should be throwing it at fascists. Like, people made that separation, which I think is really interesting. And, you know, people make this slippery slope argument of, you know, first they'll be throwing milkshakes, then it'll be bricks and pipe bombs. But actually, like, the people who supported it seemed very clear in the sort of limits of that principle, which I thought was interesting. So, this way of seeing the world just doesn't really get that way of looking at it. And when people say, oh, you know, throwing milkshakes is not civil, it's like violating the rules of civil society, and da 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 This way of seeing the world says, look, there are already these two classes in society. There is the desire to dominate and humiliate, and the desire not to be humiliated. So the directionality of the milkshake matters. Is it going at the person doing the humiliating, or is it going at the person who feels humiliated? Think about, I mentioned it earlier in the episode, the image of uh, black people protesting in a diner 
um, simply by sitting at the counter and someone pours a milkshake over their head to humiliate them. That's a real photo. Think about how different that is to um, some, like, alt-right fuckboy who's running for office in the UK who gets splattered. If you can't see that there's a difference between those things, I think you're just not seeing it. And so the response here to this sort of overly mealy-mouthed desire for civility is you already have people who are being humiliated and degraded as part of their experience of being poor in today's society or maybe being another historically disenfranchised group. People feel humiliated. You can tell them they shouldn't, but they do. And telling people they're wrong to feel humiliated is a bit like telling people that they're wrong to feel unhappy. You can tell them it, but yeah, what, what, what has that done? And... If, in order to find an expression for that, we need to get a bit rowdy and we need to take down a peg those people whose sense of self-worth, and I think the alt-right fills this very nicely, whose sense of self-worth is derived in the humiliation of others, then good, fine, it's not a problem and it's not something we need to be especially concerned about. The regulating principle here is, is it going so far that it threatens the security of the state? No, 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 milkshakes aren't, right? But at the same time, so it's very, very opposed to that sort of mealy-mouthed centrism. But at the same time, the demands for some sort of political revolution, the, the way that the, the far left often sees participation within politics as inherently corrupting, and what we actually need to do is just get rid of the political system and replace it, that sort of teleological, eschatological view of the end times of politics is completely alien to this, to this way of thinking. To this way of thinking, and this is surely borne out by history, if you, if you do get your political revolution, you'll just get a new set of masters who will eventually need to be rebelled against in the same way. The point of these big explosions of freedom, of the desire not to be dominated, the point of them is to secure space within the political system, to carve out areas of society where we, in solidarity with each other, can tell the alt-right to go fuck themselves. That's the point. And to look down on political engagement as corrupting and to sneer at working within the system is to miss the point. So there's two ways you can look at that. One is there's something for both people to dislike, both for the sort of progressive centrist. There's something to dislike because it just it just has no patience for um for, for for all of these like calls for decorum and addressing each other politely and and so on. I remember again Machiavelli's standard for for, for assessing the the riots of the early Roman Republic was not that many people died, right? That's sort of where we're at. But again, if that enabled true freedom, if that enabled the security and greatness and glory of the state, wasn't that a small price to pay? 
Again, I'm not, I'm not saying this is right, I'm saying this is the view. And there's something for the far left to dislike. They have to give up on this idea of utopia. That's not coming. We're, it, it's cyclical. We're perpetually reasserting ourselves against the desire to dominate, to carve out these spaces where we can have pride and solidarity and find meaning in that, in that resistance. So you can look at it that way, that it's, it's got stuff for both people to dislike, or you can look at it as it sort of provides a solution that both sides have been blind to. The, the point, if we think about our resistance today, think about it this, I've been talking about civil rights a lot, poor people and black people in the contemporary American Republic are systematically disenfranchised. It's not as overt and, you know, it's honestly not as bad, which is not to say it's not bad, but not as bad as it used to be. But black votes count for less. Now, part of that's because of things like the prison system and deliberate attempts to suppress votes like gerrymandering and voter ID laws. Some of it's just sort of accidental in that... um, the votes of large states, the votes of uh, people who live in cities tend to be um, comparatively less important. But what what is the point? And the same for poor people, by the way, poor people tend to get systematically shut out of politics. In fact, you, you might generally identify it with, the, with this way. The democratic coalition has less voting power. That's just, that is a true fact about the world, right? What what are we trying to achieve? What are our methods and what are we trying to do? Well, I think these methods should be those. Well, I, I wouldn't even say me. This sort of way of looking at the world, these, this pair of glasses would imply that we should be open to big, messy, noisy, disruptive protests. We shouldn't heed calls for restraint or civility. The restraining principle is, is this going to bring down the American state? Obviously it's not, right? At the same time, the goal is to carve out more of a space for ourselves within the political system. Let's get it so that I think right now, in order to take the House, the Democrats need to win the popular vote by about six to seven points, just to break even. Screw that. Like, like, let's start reforming our politics so that it's the other way around. Let's start carving out those spaces, and not just in our politics, you know, in our workplaces. I think this, this, um, this idea flows just perfectly coherently with the idea of rebuilding up unions in America. Spaces where in collectivity and solidarity with others, we can find meaning in, in resistance. In all sorts of other forms, and just apply it to all of the different institutions, all of the different social groupings, what does that look like as a vision, as a moral vision of how society is structured? And notice through all of this, I haven't mentioned distribution of income. That's secondary. That other currency I started the episode with, the currency of who gets what, that's secondary. The first currency... And the one that this moral vision is built within is that of domination, humiliation, and power. And the essential idea is this. In every state, 
There are the powerful who wish to dominate and humiliate the powerless. Those powerless desire not to be dominated and not to be humiliated, and periodically and cyclically they will rise up and push back in, ex in explosions, big chaotic protests against it, and those are good and they are to be welcomed. And in that collective desire to not be dominated, we find freedom as a class-based pride in solidarity with others. And the goal of it is to enact laws, to change institutional forms, to change social dynamics, to allow a space where that desire not to be dominated has a seat at the table, where it's, it's balanced, it's, it's mixed, it's constrained. And where you are able to get those forms, that is what makes states free and powerful. And in that institutional mix, where this chaos has been allowed to, to knock its way in, you will find stability and safety and glory and greatness. Okay. That's my account of Machiavelli. Take it, rinse it around in your head for a bit, and then just try wearing those glasses for a day or two. Have a look at history, have a look at your workplace, have a look at politics. Does this make sense? And I'll leave you with that, because honestly, I don't know. There's some areas where this seems to work with the grain of liberalism, there's some where it seems to work against it, there's some where it seems to work with radicalism, others where it works against it, but not so much does it meet a predefined standard, does this buttress an ideology we already have, it clearly does and it doesn't. Is this a better ideology? Does it are these glasses ones that enable us to see the world, the practical and the political and the moral world, more or less clearly? I don't know, but I think it's interesting. That's my sort of ideological reconstruction of Machiavelli. What do you think?